This is Friends of Europe. For more, go to friendsofeurope.org. We have two eminently qualified speakers, um, uh, both from the, the Nordic region. Sebastian Bay uh, is senior expert at NATO's Strategic uh, Communication Center of Excellence in Riga. And he's going to talk to us about the economics behind disinformation. Um, and he's also done some very interesting work on attempts uh, to use uh, social media to identify and target uh, NATO soldiers. Uh, and he may refer to that during his time here. And our second speaker, uh, and we'll move seamlessly on to her afterwards, is Jessica Aro. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, Jessica uh, is an investigative journalist uh, for the Finnish public broadcaster YLE, also known as Ulla. I hope I get that right. Um, and she's going to talk about the extraordinary reporting that she's done on troll factories on the front line of the information war. Uh, Jessica has, since she began working on this in 2014, uh, she has endured death threats, lawsuits, um, and a lot of harassment as a result of her work. Um, she has had, I think it's fair to say, the full support of her employers, which honor them. And she's now working on a book on the subject. And I would recommend to any of you who can hack into the uh, password-protected, uh, paywall-protected uh, Times uh, of London uh, website, an excellent feature on Jessica and her work, which was published last week. So without further ado, uh, Sebastian, tell us about the economics of disinformation. Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be here to speak for you. Uh, I'm going to start with a disclaimer. So I'm from NATO Strategic Communications Center of Excellence. The Center of Excellence is a NATO accredited body, but we are independent in the sense that we're not part of the uh, operational structure of NATO, nor are we funded by NATO. So I'm here to represent uh, Stratcom COE. I'm also the Swedish representative at the center. Uh, and as a Swede, of course, I have to say that it was the discussion before was all wrong. Ericsson is not behind Huawei in anything, and people should not buy uh, the uh, 35, but they should buy the Gripen fighting system. So, leaving that, <laughs> I'm going to talk about the economics of disinformation and why the economics of disinformation. Well, it stems from this belief that anything that does with hybrid is best countered by looking at the vulnerabilities approach. By dealing with vulnerabilities, I mean removing the vulnerabilities, we are better placed to uh, resist a full-on uh, assault when that comes. So what is then the economics of this information? Uh, let's see if the clicker works. It does not. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm getting, a, I'll, I'll ask for the clicks until I get a new one. So that's all right. So I'm going to give you, uh, walk you through two micro-experiments to set you into the general, what is this disinformation? And what is uh, manipulation of social media? So if I could have the next slide. So uh, this is a colleague of mine, the Donara Barojan. And uh, to answer the question of how difficult is it to manipulate social media, we took our own YouTube um, video here, 148 views it had. And then I Googled purchase YouTube views. 
And what happens then is that you get an advertisement on Google from a company that says, sells YouTube views. So you click the link and you'll come to a website, uh, one of many that sells these things. And because I'm a moderate guy, I decided to buy 2,000 views, 100 likes and 10 positive comments for the grand sum of 1654. Uh, within the first 15 minutes, I got my 100 likes, the thumbs up there. I got, within the first 12 hours, about 500 views that came. And you can see out of my comments that they are, they are machine-written. Worthy of an Oscar, lovely, absolutely adorable, this immensely sleek. <laughs> so these are machine-written, simple comments. But what also happened within the week that it took to deliver all of our uh, views was that we started getting real engagement. Philip here uh, posted a comment on our video. And why did he do that? Well, because when we manipulated the YouTube algorithm, YouTube, of course, recommended it to other viewers as a popular movie. And you can see there was people watching Gangnam Style that came up with our video here. So 15% of the views uh, came from people that watched Gangnam Style. So by buying engagement, we got authentic engagement. This is a problem that we've known about for some time. This is a company with vending machines in Russia and the Czech Republic. And they offer vending machine in subway stations and other areas where you can slide down and you can uh, buy views or likes on your desired account. You just click who you are, you choose your uh, likes, uh, you insert your money and uh, voila, you'll have um, those views raining in within some minutes. So to take this further, I developed something, the concept two proof of social media manipulation. The concept two is this vacuum cleaner, concept two. It was posted by the US Senator uh, Chuck Grassley. So I partnered with his social media team when we held a presentation uh, at the Senate. So I took one of his Instagram posts that he had posted on Christmas that had uh, a thousand likes and I decided to upload custom comments. These are comments that you write yourself. Uh, so you simply write them in your notepad, uh, as I did on the left, and they will be uploaded by bots, as you can see on the right. So it will look like it was uploaded by real people, while in fact, I did it. And I did this from, uh, from a site that offers these sort of manipulation services. So, in total, I paid $20 for 4,000 views and 80 custom comments being uploaded. And these are comments that I had written and they were delivered within roughly 15 minutes from me clicking the upload button. So we reported these things to Facebook. We said, okay, we manipulated these social media accounts. What have you done about it? And the first thing is very interesting. You can't actually report an inauthentic comment. You can report inauthentic accounts, but Facebook does not support inauthentic comment reporting. So you have to say that it's spam or something else. And what's the point of this? Well, the point is, of course, that I uploaded inspirational quotes on the social media profiles of a US senator, but anyone could have uploaded other kinds of content, be it content that attacks a journalist or be it political comment to manipulate a conversation. So I've published a report called The Black Market of Social Media Manipulation and black is crossed out because we realized very quickly after starting to look on the very dark webs that this is not a black market problem, this is a very open problem, this is something that's 
uh, very accessible for most people. So I'm going to share with you today four insights from this study, four insights and four takeaways. First is that the scale of this black market is very uh, extensive. The infrastructure behind it is very extensive. And what does that mean? Well, it means that, yes, we have these service providers, these websites that you visit, but for them to work, you need software, you need management platforms that are sold and maintained, and they offer 24-7 customer support. For these softwares to work, you need accounts, bots, so to say, fake accounts. There's a whole industry that lives out of just creating these fake accounts. And for these fake account industry to work, they depend upon subcontractors of scripts and capture services, of SIM cards, of digital fingerprints. And this all comes together as a very elaborate industry. This is one of the, the softwares used for manipulating um, Instagram. And many of these companies offer um, uh, contacts uh, so that their services can work. And it makes sense, right? You're selling a software platform, and that platform will only work if you have bots. So, of course, you help your customers to find the bots that you can then run these uh, services in, in full, so to say. And openness, as I've said, is very striking. And it's very striking in the sense that they advertise ferociously. Uh, they constantly improve. They constantly offer updates. Uh, for an example here, saying that, oh, we've added new Facebook accounts from different countries, now supporting Norway, Turkey, Mexico, Italy, Sweden, Germany, Spain, Canada, etc. So that is to personalize your influence operations so that they look genuine. And of course, it's uh, companies that are very available in the European Union as well. Um, this is a German service, obviously. Um, this uh, is a French service that is also available in several other uh, languages. Uh, let's see. Uh, if I could have some help in clicking that, see if we can get this video running. So uh, this is one of the larger European providers, and they also offer these tutorials on YouTube for how to manipulate YouTube, which is very effective, right? If you want to ma manipulate YouTube, where else to get your information than YouTube? So Kelly here is thinking, how can I grow my business? Nobody's clicking my likes, nobody's viewing my content, she's sad. So she goes to the site, Social Media Daily, and she just buys this engagement, and all of a sudden, things just happen for her. Simply. With a few clicks, her views finally start to rise. So this is what we call meta-manipulation. This is manipulation that is extremely difficult to spot because it manipulates the counts of social media posts. You cannot see who viewed a Facebook video. Only YouTube can see that, or Facebook. You will only see that it's trending and that it's recommended to you. And that is a very insidious thing that can be used in a very bad way. And we saw that, for an example, during the Christchurch shooting, where uh, the ultra-right-wing neo-Nazi groups had developed a protocol for how to make these shooting videos trend and be shown to people that had not wanted to see it. Uh, and several thousand people in the end ended up calling the New Zealand uh, health line uh, because they had been subjugated to these videos. So uh, how big of a business is this then? Well, this is one of many, many uh, companies in Europe that we have seen. Uh, this is a German company. They're very open. If you go to their website, they'll have 10 listings uh, of um, people that work there. And as you see, they turned over in 2016 564,000 euros. So they make quite a lot of money, and these are not 
the only company. We have listed, uh, we've seen more than 100 companies in Europe, more than 300 in Russia, and several hundred of companies in the Southeast Asia Pacific region. So there are many people that live uh, off this industry that is quite lucrative. And they advertise their services very fearlessly. So it's very interesting that Google allows this sort of manipulation. Google takes money from these companies when they place an ad. Then, of course, they charge the advertisers on their own platform when their videos are being viewed by, in this case, bots. Much of this infrastructure is Russian. Uh, that does not mean that I will stand here and say that we think it's run out of the Russian government. That's not what I think. But I have seen that several of the software companies uh, come out of Russia, and they are very good at providing these sort of services, and many of the European providers depend upon this software infrastructure. I bring this up first, of course, to say it, but also to say something else is very important, because that means that it increases the risk of false attribution. If you have a right-wing group in Europe that buys these things, and you look at where did the bots come from, it's very likely that it's going to look like they came from Russia, and they did, but they will come from a commercial service that is being run by that. They might even have bought it from a European company that then to make more money, bought a cheaper service from Russia or Indonesia, which is the big country in the Asia-Pacific region. So our take on this, or my take on this, is that self-regulation isn't working. It is as easy now as it was a year ago to go onto any of these websites, buy 10 comments, and they will be uploaded within 15 minutes. They're very nice. They inform you. Right now, for example, Instagram is uh, going through a, an update. So they've sent me messages saying, sorry, we can't deliver your orders for the next two weeks because we have to update our infrastructure because Instagram has made it more difficult. But every time this has happened, they have caught up. And we should consider if we need to mar regulate this market of fakes. We talk a lot about regulating social media companies. We talk about national regulations for what should be allowed or not. But we haven't much talked about regulating the economy for disinformation or fakes. So that's a little bit like I say, we put a lot of pressure on the banks, saying you need to be resistant to bank robbers, but we haven't made bank robbing illegal yet. So this is a market that exists in a gray zone. There are no regulations. And many of these work for the commercial sector. I looked at one company during one day, what other things they were doing. And yes, they were manipulating other companies, such as uh, popular DJs, football stars, but they were also manipulating an election in Brazil, an election in Malawi, and several uh, European uh, companies. This is interesting because we've also seen that state actors use these services. And it makes sense. If you're going to run an influence campaign, why not buy what's cheap off the market? Why invent the wheel yourself, so to say? Leverage the vulnerabilities that are already out there. So there are several risks and consequences here to highlight. Political manipulation, ad industry fraud, hate speech and bullying, and also several national security threats. That is the end of my presentation, and hopefully I have highlighted that there is much more to the issue of disinformation than just states running this. And we saw that extensively during European election when we had several right-wing groups using these services and also being spotted by civil rights groups. But interestingly, not to the extent we would have wanted by the social media companies. Thank you. If you want to know more, there is a report on our website on this topic. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sebastian. Thank you for that very uh, uh, striking and succinct 
presentation. Without further ado, Jessica, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, Sebastian, for an intriguing presentation. I will tell you today two stories. I will tell you uh, how my life changed after I started to investigate in 2014 the then new phenomenon of Russian information warfare, the social media propaganda troll factory, and specifically its impact. And I will let you know what I found out in my investigations. I specifically wanted to know in 2014 September, how do these fake and anonymous pro-Russian propaganda accounts impact in real people? Do they have any kind of impact? Can everyone spot a troll when they see one? Or are people maybe prone to react on material that comes from possibly state-sponsored paid trolls? So I made a crowdsourcing story. I asked people to participate in my investigation. It was impossible for me to investigate this alone, so I wanted people to help me. At that time, we already had Russian trolls attacking opinion leaders, such as our then um, defense minister. After he posted something, some facts about Ukraine and Russia's activities in Ukraine, the Russian trolls would attack him. Also, the trolls were attacking cybersecurity professor anytime he posted something on Twitter and, of course, demeaned their comments. Also, the trolls uh, were told by the Guardian newspaper in the UK to attack every piece they publish online about Ukraine. The trolls, in masses, posted tens of thousands of comments under each piece of Ukraine, demeaning and saying it's all a lie and conspiracy and Russia never went to Ukraine. So, I wanted to know, how do these trolls influence real people? You know, the normal people who just use internet. So, as soon as I did it, I became myself target of fake news in Russia. About 10 different Russian fake news sites started to spread disinformation and lies about me and my person. They claimed that I am uh, not a journalist at all. Instead, I am a famous assistant of NATO and American Baltic Special Services. They lied that I am gathering an illegal database, so engaging in criminal activities and um, listing actual people in Finland who support Putin, even though it was not what I, what I was doing. I was investigating just like anonymous and fake profiles. Anyways, they told this as a fact and published my contact information. And as soon as I started to receive angry phone calls, hateful phone calls from Russia, from Kazakhstan, from Ukraine, from anywhere these pieces had been read, I realized why disinformation is not just some abstract threat to freedom of speech, it's also a threat to individuals, security, such as myself, but also a threat to national security. It is being used to incite hatred, the feeling of hatred in people. And because it spreads across borders in a heartbeat, it's dangerous. People believe this stuff and then act upon it. Here, who was spreading the uh, disinformation about me, this guy, Finnish citizen, called Johan Beckman. He works with um, Putin's administration's so-called think tank called RIS, Russian Institute of Strategic Studies, based in Moscow, um, run by intelligence officers of Russia. And he engages himself in all kinds of international propaganda operations. Um, according to Mark Galeotti, a specialist in Russian security services, RIS is merely 
a Russian security services PR wing. Also, in the time span of like five days or so after my, um, my investigation was published, trolls and Johan Beckmann and anonymous profiles started a new trolling group on Facebook called Russian Troll Army as a funny counter-reaction to ULES, Finnish broadcasting company's troll chase. In this group, which still exists, despite of many user reports to Facebook, they created an uh, atmosphere using psychological warfare means, claiming that it's okay and normal use of freedom of speech to, for example, write in this group that Jessica Aro uh, should be dead, Jessica Aro, should, her stomach should be slit open, uh, she should die of uranium poisoning, she is mentally ill, she is NATO troll, and also... Um, do operations in, in cooperation with professional propagandists, anonymous profiles, and then individuals who just happen to find this group and participate in these activities. If anyone dared to criticize the administrators of this group, they were bullied and kicked out. Okay, then we went with my colleague to the Troll Factory, February 2015. Uh, we found out interesting things, for example, that they were recruiting uh, back then, uh, and they actually still are, new uh, workers. Of course, they don't call themselves Troll Factory, they call themselves Internet Research Agency. And they were recruiting on open, um, in normal Russian job sites, not trolls, instead social media content creators, copywriters, graphic designers, to work and produce material and moderate material online in 12-hour shifts, also in nighttime, and also in English language. And we called there, we, pre we pretended that we want a job there, and we asked, what kind of material do you want me to produce if I work there, like commercial business, you know, what kind? And they told it themselves, political. So already back in 2015, there was an ongoing international disinformation troll operation targeted to who knows how many different countries. Of course, then when we published our stories, also in English, because there was a, a massive need, uh, the factory was not well known and it was well cited, but the trolls didn't like that uh, so much. So they continued their operations against me and my colleague and Ule. And they um, used Facebook feature called event. In this event, you can, um, well, organize any kinds of events, starting from birthday parties or housewarming parties to protests or whatever. So they used Facebook events to smear uh, Ule, my employer, as troll factory, and to invite everyone uh, to the Ule troll factory to protest Ule propaganda spreading, and they threatened to do the same to Ule troll factory what Ule journalists and propaganda spreaders did to the actual St. Petersburg uh, news agency. And this caused um, massive security concern, and um, the, in the end not many people showed up, but it still shows that uh, what happens in social uh, sphere, our sh social media sphere, doesn't stay there. In addition, later in 2017, uh, when they started to investigate the Russian meddling in U.S. elections and troll operations during the U.S. elections, they found out that the Russian troll factory had also um, organized protests from St. Petersburg using Facebook events on 
U.S. soil. Protests in which other part of the protesters, they were um, against immigrants, and the other protest group was um, pro-immigrants. So they were creating chaos. Here also someone presented to be uh, my father, who had been dead for 20 years, um, sent me a message saying that he monitors me. And at this point I realized that, you know, they are whoever is doing this and um, the people helping the people who started all this just don't have any kind of boundaries. They also wanted to include my family, uh, which is completely private uh, business for me, uh, to my work, to harass me. So, May 2015, I published my series of articles specifying the techniques as well as the impact of the social media propaganda trolls in real people in Finland. I investigated um, English language, Russian language and Finnish language trolling, which is not only targeted at Finns, but internationally, anyone who knows these languages. I found out they use memes, they use linking of YouTube videos um, and uh, found some botnets also, uh, then also they attack people, they um, go to traditional media comment sections to spread disinformation. They, for example, also attack the biggest Russian-speaking forum in Finland to create chaos and arguments. Um, I also listed many of the sites from where I found organized and systematic pro-Russian trolling and also pro-Russian fake news. And one of the one of the sites that I found was What the Fuck Paper. And I will tell you about that uh, a bit later, but they also retaliated. But what I found out, how they really had impacted in ideas, attitudes, or behavior of real people. I found out three things, basically. Some Finns had already been silenced and scared because they had voiced out an opinion or information about Russia and afterwards become harassed and threatened by the trolls. So some of them even quit social media because they didn't want that anymore. Then some Finns told me that they had lost the, lost the idea what is true and what is not true, for example, in the situation about Ukraine, because there was so much disinformation being spread about it. They didn't know who really started it. Then some people also... Uh, when they become subjected to propaganda, they start to spread it on their own social media networks. But then also good news was that some people were not uh, impacted. They had just noti notified that there are these trolls spreading disinformation and propaganda, but that it was only the new technological means uh, of digital uh, digitalization to spread the old-fashioned Soviet Union propaganda. So then, here's also one source of trolling. Then in Finland, also afterwards in many other countries, the social media accounts of Russian um, embassies. Uh, then here, uh, my harassment continued. By the way, it still continues. Uh, here, the troll activists and anonymous people have made music video in which they hired an actress to play me. In this music video, including a song about me, it says that it basically re repeats the same lines over and over again, which were already put out there in 2014 when I started. Uh, they claim that I'm a NATO troll and paid propagandist, and they also bought visibility from Facebook to spread their materials, smearing me to even more targeted and bigger audiences. And Facebook happily profits from this. 
uh, here, what the fuck paper. So what the fuck paper is this um, pretentious uh, wannabe news site, which claim, just like many other Russian um, or pro-Russian propaganda outlets, that they are the media that tell the truth that the mainstream media is hiding. When in fact, when you look at their content, they tell, for example, that immigrants are rapists and terrorists and all Muslims, you know, should be, you know, uh, something bad should be done to them. Uh, and then they also translate Russia Today propaganda materials into Finnish. And they also attacked me the very same day in which I listed them as one of the troll sites and propaganda sites in Finnish. Until today, uh, they have published around 300 pieces about me in which they say that I am brain damaged, I'm a drug addict, drug dealer, NATO troll, I'm liar and a really crappy journalist. And Again, the sad news is that some people, even some of my own, own old friends, believe this stuff, and they uh, then threaten me, uh, sent me death threats. And they also went through old court files from year 2004, and they found that I had received 300 euro fine for drug use, and they made it into this. And by the way, it was Johan Beckman working with RIS, who ordered those papers from, and also gave them to What the Fuck paper. Uh, here, just tip of the iceberg of the what the fuck paper stories. This gives you the idea. Also, I'm being physically followed in Helsinki by this uh, priest who is RT contributor as well as what the fuck paper uh, journalist. Uh, here, just whenever I do anything, uh, RT or someone else makes filth stories. Here are some memes. These circulate very nicely on social media. Also amongst, you know, real people who now really hate me and don't believe anything I say. Uh, here then they also attack the police uh, who start investigating their suspected libels and other crimes. Uh, here is the uh, head chief of Finnish police. Here is the head investigator of What the Fuck Paper and Johan Beckman who didn't have his photo online before he started the What the Fuck investigations, and other field police and social media police. They attack everyone. Also, they attack any uh, who they claim as pro-NATO officer of the Finnish army. And here, to show you uh, who was then uh, behind of all the trolling operations uh, of the US uh, elections, it was RIS. And here, just trial was also a mess. And then finally, this is what the trolls have been up to um, after my investigations. They have attacked at least uh, <laughs> the US elections. They have promoted violence on Cat Catalonian independence clashes. They are at the moment fueling hatred uh, in France on Yellow West protests. And they have been recently found to spread anti-vaccination messages in uh, America. So yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> Uh, that's a hard act to follow, a very chilling story there. Um, we've looked this morning at uh, what Europe means by pursuing strategic autonomy and what the uh, reality and the ambitions of Europe's defense initiative is. Um, and the next step, uh, I think, uh, before we close today, is to look at how it looks from outside as well as from inside. So we've got a very distinguished panel for you, and I'm glad 
so many of you who have been able to stay on. Uh, we have, first of all, Natalie Tocci. Uh, Natalie is director of the uh, Instituto Affari Internazionali uh, in Rome, and she's also special advisor to uh, the EU's foreign policy chief, uh, Federica Mogherini, and in that capacity, uh, she led the drafting of the EU's global strategy, which was adopted in 2016. So, Natalie, please uh, come up and join us. Um, from China, we have today Yan Yan. Very pleased to have you. Yan Yan is uh, Director of uh, Oceans Law and Policy at the National Institute for South China Sea Studies. Uh, she studied in Hong Kong and at LSE in London, and uh, we're very interested to hear uh, how European defense and Europe's attempt to be more strategic looks from a Chinese perspective. So please come up and join us. Um, from Russia, we're very pleased to have Alexei Drobinin. He is Deputy Director of the Foreign Policy uh, Planning Unit uh, department in the, in the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Before that, he had postings to Israel, uh, to Washington, and to Turkey. Uh, Alexei, welcome. And last but not least, and it's 4.30 a.m. in the morning in Denver, but the superpower never sleeps. Uh, Chris Hill uh, uh, is joining us, a most distinguished uh, former American diplomat, uh, who was ambassador to Iraq in 2009-2010. He was assistant secretary of state for East Asia and the Pacific. He dealt with North Korea negotiations. Uh, he was also uh, a key player in U.S. diplomacy in the Balkans, knows Europe well, having served both as the mediator on Kosovo, where I met him at the Rambouillet talks, um, and uh, as ambassador in Poland, uh, North Macedonia, as we now are going to call it, and uh, the Republic of Korea. So, uh, Chris, welcome to you. Um, I think I'd like to start with the, the view from inside. Um, Natalie, three years on uh, from the global strategy, um, how, do, you know, how are things living up to your expectations? What's gone, ra what's gone right, what's going wrong, and what needs to be fixed? Um, is this working? Yes. Yes. Um, well, I think sort of first observation really is that we know that three years is a lifetime in politics, but I think it has been particularly so for the European Union and particularly when it comes to the European Union's global role. Uh, I mean, if we kind of rewind back to 2016, uh, indeed when the global strategy was, was published, uh, we thought that we were on the verge of the precipice. Uh, the strategy was published 48 hours after the UK decision to leave the European Union. Uh, and at the time, the EU really felt that it was going through an existential moment. Uh, as we will recall back then, the EU was, I mean, after the Brexit vote, uh, was opening up to a year of really critical elections in well, the rerun of the Austrian presidential election, yep. uh, the Dutch election, uh, the French presidential election, and then ending the annus horribilis of, uh, of elections with the German uh, election. And the, the fear really was back then of, uh, you know, one domino has fallen and many more uh, are, are to follow. 
Then in a rather sort of typically European, rather schizophrenic mode, uh, we completely turned uh, to a moment of euphoria, uh, particularly after, of course, the French uh, presidential election and the election of Emmanuel Macron, but also, I would say, with the sort of bottom-up reawakening of a pro-European feeling, the Pulse of Europe demonstrations, the celebrations for the uh, 60th anniversary of the Rome Treaty. Uh, and the feeling really was that, as President Juncker put it back then, the EU finally has wind in its sails once again. Then from that moment of uh, euphoria, we plunge back into utter depression uh, with my wonderful country's uh, parliamentary elections in March last year, which for the first time uh, saw not only Eurosceptic parties uh, forming a government, but Eurosceptic parties coming from opposite sides of that traditional left-right uh, divide, but sharing uh, the same position in the vertical, if you like, open-closed divide that really characterizes much of 21st century politics. Now, now I think we're slightly moving back towards perhaps optimism is too strong a term, uh, but feeling that, um, you know, uh, the, the, particularly after the European Parliament elections, the specter of a fascist Europe uh, hasn't quite disappeared altogether, but it certainly has receded. Uh, we shouldn't be lowering our guards, but at least we have the opportunity uh, to pick up the work once uh, we figure out what exactly is going on with the next political institutional cycle. So this is as far as internally uh, Europe is concerned. I mean, I'll come obviously to what this all means for security and defense. Um, now, I think what's interesting is that this has happened uh, precisely at a time, and it's obviously not a coincidence, in which what we thought back in 2016 and what we already knew, meaning that the world is moving, moving towards a more uh, multipolar uh, sort of power distribution, but we had the illusion back then that that could indeed lead to a further strengthening of the multilateral system. Uh, we know now that for the time being, let's see what happens uh, in the years and decades ahead, but for the time being, that greater fragmentation of power in the international system has actually led to greater uh, global power competition and rivalry. We also know now something that we didn't quite know back then, back then which was completely you know, tied to what we were, the two stories that we were uh, listening in the previous section, that connectivity, yes, obviously does offer wonderful opportunities, but it obviously is and it has become uh, an instrument uh, of uh, conflict and destabilization. And of course, not only do we see our surrounding regions, both east and south, being affected and penetrated by this great power competition, but we also see the risk of ourselves, uh, the European Union being affected and becoming a playground, essentially, uh, for this great uh, power competition. And all this, I think, really has informed much of what has been done, uh, particularly on, and not only on security and defense, but particularly on security and defense in the last years. Now, I appreciate that probably to my left, and to my right, if I start listing PESCOs and CARDs and MPCCs and EDFs, you're going to probably look at me uh, like I'm completely uh, mad. Uh, but for probably most people in this room that know 
how much security and defense have traditionally been the ugly ducklings of European integration, what has been done over the last years is no less than quote-unquote historic in nature. Now, that does not mean to say that we are today strategically autonomous. And by the way, strategic autonomy, yes, is a term that is highlighted in the global strategy, but let me remind everyone, given that it has caused quite a bit of a stir uh, recently, that it was not first mentioned in the EU global strategy. It was actually approved by the Council back in the 2013 uh, Council conclusions. So, progress made on security and defense in the last years, indeed, these, this various uh, and varied acronym soup uh, that we're all more or less familiar with, obviously are only the first building blocks uh, of, uh, of a security and defense union. Obviously, the goal of autonomy is a long-term goal, but precisely because it's a long-term goal, it is something on which we have to start working on yesterday. Uh, and I think another key point is that it's not only connected to, I mean, strategic autonomy obviously is related to security and defense, and it has to do with decision-making capacity, with civilian and military capabilities, and with the will and the ability to use them together. And this gets us into the sort of uh, slightly more complicated terrains of a common strategic culture. But autonomy is also connected to the broader role of the, uh, of the European Union in the world, touching also on economic uh, matters. Now, why, and this is the last point I'll make, why do we want to be autonomous? Is it because we want to become autarkic or protectionist? No. Uh, is it because we actually want to be a power in the great power competition that is unfolding? No. We simply want to be able to interact, uh, indeed, with great and small powers, huh? and, and therefore be an actor, but in order to protect and to promote our interests uh, in line with ultimately what the values of the European treaties are. Thank you. Thank you very much, Natalie. Um, I'm going to turn uh, to Alexei and ask you the question. I mean, when, when I, I was thinking about trying to put myself in your shoes and saying there are three possible attitudes Russia might have towards European strategic autonomy and European defense initiatives. Uh, one is to think that it's a threat and it must be prevented. Uh, two is to think that it's an opportunity, perhaps over time, uh, to work on common interests, but also to uh, gradually ease the United States out of the picture of European security, which some would say was, has been a long-term objective uh, of Moscow. Uh, and number three is to say, it, it will never happen. It's not worth losing any sleep over. Uh, we, can, we can go on with business as usual. Um, so without further ado, which of these uh, three, <laughs> three responses do you think is the right one? Oh, thank you, Paul. <clears throat> First, let me uh, thank the uh, organizers to give me the opportunity to speak to the respected audience on a vital issue for all Europeans. Uh, straightforward to the subject of our panel and to your quest questions, I would say that the general assessment in Russia is that uh, the declared aspiration of some of the European leaders for a strategic autonomy points to their willingness to seek a new place for Europe in the world undergoing deep and rapid transformations. In our view, the European is uh, an important power and could uh, rightfully make a positive contribution to the international security. 
So generally speaking, this is one of the answers that I would like to give to Paul, is the European wish to achieve a measure of uh, self-sufficiency in terms of defense and military capabilities is in line with the larger dynamic of an emerging multipolar world order. Uh, having said that, uh, let me express a growing concern that we already have at this very initial stage of the European defense integration we have in Russia with regard to the future direction of the European military and strategic identity. For one, let us be frank about uh, the military uh, bond between the EU and NATO. If the EU economic, political and infrastructural assets are put at NATO's disposal for the sake of containing or deterring Russia, it is nothing but a policy based on illusions and uh, a poor reading of geopolitical reality. Well, let me, let me uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, remind you that Russia is not going to uh, um, wage a war with Europe or a part of it. Uh, so why squander time and resources on countering the non-existent Russian threat? To emphasize this point, I would like to say that from Russia's perspective, there is a real risk that the political clout and uh, material assets of the EU will be utilized to bolster the US and NATO's military activity on the so-called eastern flank, close to Russia's border. Uh, the problem is that this activity, in our view, is uh, one of the key factors fueling geopolitical and military tensions on the continent. You know, military planners are very straightforward guys and uh, they judge the other side uh, by, the, by the potentials, not only by the intentions. To be even more precise, uh, the flagship project of the European Union's Permanent Structured Cooperation, PESCO, is military mobility or uh, mil the military Schengen. It largely corresponds with the proclaimed interests of the US and NATO to reduce time and efforts necessary to quickly deploy military personnel and equipment to the eastern flank. In the future, the European Com Commission apparently plans to draw on its budget to upgrade and build roads and pipelines in conformity with the technical requirements of NATO. If that is so, it is not quite clear, at least to us, what strategic autonomy we are talking about for Europe. Secondly, the enhancement, uh, the enhanced EU-NATO cooperation is problematic because uh, it brings on board EU member states that are not NATO members. I will recall the 10th of July 2018 EU-NATO Joint Declaration, which refers, among other things, to the fullest possible involvement of the EU member states uh, that are not part or of the alliance in its initiatives, as well as to the coherence, complementarity and interoperability of EU-NATO defense initiatives. I wonder if that doesn't look like a slippery slope which could end up undermining the neutral or non-allied status of those EU member states, some of which for decades, even at the height of the Cold War tensions, have been able to play a valuable uh, mediation role in reducing those tensions. Will Europe be safer off as a result? I don't know. It's for you to decide, of course. 
Going forward, we would welcome more transparency on the part of our EU partners regarding their common security and defense policy. Our hope is that the implementation of this policy will factor in Russia, not as a stereotyped adversary, but rather as a partner. I could recall a number of examples from the past when Russia and the EU were partners militarily, but I won't do that here, just to save time. Needless to say, the implementation of the CSDP should be in conformity with uh, uh, the norms of international law. By the way, nobody has spoken about international law today, that's a pity in my view. Uh, international law and basic principles of European security as enshrined in the UN Charter, the 1999 Charter of European Security and other relevant OSCE documents. Respect for international law should be the basis of European strategic culture. It should underpin the idea of a rules-based order. Otherwise, we get yet another sure recipe for more instability and chaos in international relations. To round off my remarks, introductory remarks, uh, let me point out that uh, in our view it is still possible to build a viable collective security system in Europe that reflects threats and challenges of the 21st century and not of the previous one. That is why we listened in with interest to President Macron's initiative about a new architecture of the European security that should inc involve a dialogue with both Russia and Turkey, we see healthy potential in putting this subject on the agenda. The big elephant in, in the room uh, is, of course, the U.S. decision to scrap the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, uh, its possible implications for European security. No one has touched upon this. I would expect more deliberation and, I should say, pushback from uh, on the issue from the European political and civil society leaders. Back in Russia, over the last years, we have been talking more about Eurasian rather than European security, with major security, economic and demographic challenges looming from the south. Uh, the process of the Eurasian integration uh, is gaining momentum. Russia is taking a lead role in such groupings as the Collective Security Treaty Organizations. I'm finishing. Just another minute. Uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and the Eurasian Economic Union. We are working to increase connectivity and structural harmony between major regional organizations, uh, mechanisms and initiatives such as ASEAN, and the Belt and Road Initiative. In the long run, that is expected to shape the basis for a greater Eurasian partnership as a framework for a free trade zone and common security space without division lines. It is against this geoeconomic and geopolitical background that European security will have to be evaluated in the coming one or two decades. And finally, we still see as a good option our proposal to conclude a European security treaty, emphasizing the principle of indivisibility of security and the equality of all negotiating parties. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alexei. You've put a lot on the table there. I think anybody who had any doubts that Russia takes the European uh, uh, Defense Initiative seriously uh, has clearly learned there that you do and that you, have both, you see it both as an opportunity and as a, potentially as a risk, as a threat. 
Um, so we'll come back to that. I'm sure you'll get lots of questions. I'm going to go over to Denver now. Chris, you're still awake there? <laughs> yes, I'm here. Great. When you Great. hear when you he European strategic European autonomy, um, um, do you yawn and say, yeah, heard all of this before? Uh, they'll never do uh, it. Never do or do you, th do you see it as something that is... Uh, a bit of a threat to the United right. States, duplicating NATO, potentially sort of pushing America out of the picture? Or do you see it as the, a long overdue awakening uh, of uh, the European wing of NATO, which uh, Alexei was concerned about just now? Uh, how does it look from Denver at 4.30 a.m.? Well, first of all, uh, you're kind of coming in and out a little on the audio. But that's uh, perhaps a metaphor for the subject we're talking about, because uh, <laughs> certainly the common uh, security, this whole notion of European identity on common security and defense has kind of come in and out. Uh, you recall the uh, headline goals of uh, a number of years ago. Uh, so it, But I think it is a kind of, uh, to switch the metaphor, a kind of uh, hardy perennial of the transatlantic relationship and one that... Uh, uh, we should, uh, in fact, try to develop further. Look, you didn't ask me to get up at 4.30 in the morning to tell you that all is well in the, in the United States <laughs> and that uh, we have a total and unshakable commitment to transatlanticism, etc. We have a lot of problems here right now. Hmm. I would say one of the biggest problems is, of course, uh, everyone seems to have an opinion about these things, and we have a lot of divergent opinions in the United States. Starting with our administration, however, which is probably the most important opinion, at least for the next 18 months, there is a sort of broad sense that somehow the U.S. has been victimized in its international activities. Now, I never thought I'd live to see the day where the United States joins countries whose national narrative is that of a victim. I don't consider us a victim. I think the world has been pretty good to us. And I do like to think that we've been pretty good to the world. But nonetheless, I mean, there are a lot of Americans who feel that uh, the U.S. has taken a sort of uh, uh, has had to take much too great a role in the transatlantic uh, security um, um, capacities. Certainly the view that somehow NATO is uh, too much of a U.S. show, that we need to see more capabilities among our European friends. And of course, we had the 2% goal, which has been achieved by a number of countries, but of course, not by all countries. So uh, you're hearing, I think, from the U.S. a sense of uh, uh, frustration at times that uh, our partners talk about these issues, but don't um, they, they talk the talk, don't walk the walk in terms of uh, defense uh, out, uh, outlays, et cetera. So um, this is, I think, one thing to understand. But I think more broadly, what you're seeing in the United States is a sense of exhaustion from some of these overseas commitments. Uh, certainly, as I can speak as someone who served in Iraq, uh, this is a, a venture that I don't think historians will look kindly at, even though those of us who served there don't like to say it was all a waste because you know many we lost colleagues there and it was a very, very difficult, uh, difficult time for us. Uh, I think the issue right now, of course, 
is Afghanistan and what is our longer term commitment there. As you know, we're having negotiations right now with the Taliban on what would eventually be the withdrawal of, of our forces and probably of European forces. So these commitments to what used to be known as sort of out of area missions um, is something that I think many Americans are kind of looking uh, askance at. And certainly uh, we have a president who is kind of settled on not so much the notion of uh, doing more together militarily, but I think that has settled on the what he considers the big problem, which are the economic balances, which he uh, economic imbalances, which he believes are are a sort of symptom of the U.S. allowing others to get their way, being too weak, not pushing hard enough, and so uh, we have now uh, seen where tariffs have become sort of. Uh, if you compare tariffs to uh, sort of military action of 20 years ago, it's kind of the new uh, the new paradigm. Whenever we have a problem with a country, we look at the possibility of additional tariffs. For those of us who believed in this relationship, who believe in the United States as a European country, frankly, also as a Pacific country, these are very new concepts. And frankly, I've got to tell you, very uncomfortable concepts. Yeah. Uh, there, it seems like half the half the country is running for president right now, <laughs> and I think you have to understand that in the context of people feeling there's something very wrong about all this. Yeah. That said, I think as we get to uh, our election, uh, you know, I, I won't make a uh, prediction, but uh, but I would say that uh, there, even if there is a new administration. Uh, we will still be dealing with new problems. And this is not going to be a case of getting uh, people coming in who will then turn the clock back. We are going to have to look at how uh, how we can develop these relationships uh, going forward. I remember so well working on issues like Bosnia and Kosovo. And I remember any time we did something on Bosnia or Kosovo, one of the first questions would be how are we managing the Russian Federation role in this? Is Are we making sure that Russia feels they're full participants? Are we really making sure this concept of the founding act is working? And yet I think right now it is fair to say we are in a very difficult position with respect to Russia. It's not just Ukraine, it's a lot of other issues. And uh, this issue of the Eastern flank uh, which I think is a challenge for uh, Europe uh, uh, internally is also a challenge for us. I mean, many of these countries say, look, we're happy to be in NATO, but we want some sign that NATO's in us. So a lot of issues there where the U.S. has to consider how its role in Europe. And finally, I'd like to say, as someone who worked a lot about on China, where for me, a big part of the negotiations with North Korea was not just giving those uh, uh, lovable people uh, an opportunity to give up their nuclear weapons. Uh, I mean, really, North Koreans are a people only a mother can love, I think. But uh, to try to get uh, kind of establish some patterns of cooperation with China. And um, right now, that is not happening in any way, shape, or form. And I think the U.S. is going to have to deal with this China relationship. 
So we have 18 months of this administration. It's an administration that uses brute force, certainly in, in many different ways. And it's understandable. If I'm a European, I would certainly be looking at more autonomy in these issues, especially on the issue of economic uh, uh, economic matters where you have the dollar as the as the currency that settles energy uh, contracts and yet uh, there's a, I think a growing concern that we're using that to enforce sanctions in a sort of extraterritorial sense. So um, I think any new administration is going to have to look forward. We're not going to be able to wind the clock back to when everything was okay. We're going to have to look forward and figure out how to deal with these issues. Chris, thank you very much indeed. I let you give you a bit of extra time because it is so uh, early in the morning in, in Denver. Uh, but uh, we, we, you gave us a perfect lead into China. And this morning, Yap de Hobsgreffer in the earlier session, maybe I made a better fist at your name than my predecessor on the podium. Not much better, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, anyway, Yap this morning uh, uh, said that you know, Europe needed to be careful, otherwise it would become the nut in the cracker between the United States and China. When you look at it from China, um, how does uh, Europe's sort of quest for strategic autonomy uh, for uh, uh, more of a, uh, uh, its own defense look to you? Does it look serious? Or do you think of Europe as an economic bloc, but as a series of separate nation states when it comes to defense and strategic relations? Thank you, Chair. Well, first of all, I would like to thank the organizers for inviting me here because I do enjoy the cool summer days here in Brussels because uh, the place where I come from, a tropical island in China, is already 40 Celsius degree. So, <laughs> thank you. And uh, honestly, uh, most of my EU knowledge, especially the uh, EU global strategy, comes from a YouTube um, video lectures from Professor Tossi. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I'm thinking that probably today I cannot uh, give you more information from the inside, but I'm thinking maybe I can talk about it uh, from the perspective of uh, Asia-Pacific country as China. Well, um, um, I think the, the question, no, the answer to your question, I wanted to start with uh, another question to you and to all the audience, that um, how does the EU see a rising China, especially during the process of achieving your um, defense initiative? Do you see China as a, a rising China as a, a potential partner or a rival? I think this is a very big and uh, important question. I do wanted to have some ideas and opinions that I can take away. Well, from the perspective of China or from me personally, I think that China EU are still committed to a comprehensive strategic partnership, which is expressed in the uh, expressed in the EU China 2020 strategic um, uh, agenda for cooperation. Therefore, I think the core of the China EU relationship still lies on economic cooperation. And um, um, also, China is uh, is uh, China and you are cooperative partners for this um, upholding this uh, multilateralism, and that is uh, that is a thing that I'm pretty sure. And also for other uh, countries in the Asia Pacific, especially the Southeast Asian countries, I think EU to them is also a strong economic player. Well, the EU is actually ASEAN's um, second largest trading partner with a 13% share of ASEAN's total trade with the world. And 
also, the EU is, a, is, a, is an important initial uh, donor of development and aid and working to foster institution building, good governance, etc., etc. So for China and for um, ASEAN countries in our region, I think the EU, I personally see you as more of an economic entity instead of a defense one. Um, compared to the United States, the, United, uh, the EU or the NATO does not have military power capability uh, uh, projection in the South China Sea, also in other maritime areas in the Asia Pacific. So I think that's, that's the difference between EU and the United States as seen from, from my perspective. So I, I just can't see EU as a, uh, as a defense or military or security power in our region. And that's my personal feeling. And um, also, uh, what is very interesting from this morning's discussion and also from yesterday's um, dinner debate, I did learn a lot. And one interesting thing that I, I observe is that it seems that uh, the EU, uh, all the EU member states, all of you, does not have a consensus on the, on the defense, uh, defense initiative especially this strategic uh, autonomy. And this strategic autonomy, honestly speaking, is a new concept to me. I wanted to learn more about it, but I don't think that you have a already reached consensus, if I understand it correctly. But I do hear some very inspiring um, ideas and opinion this morning that I think that I need to have some deep thinking about it. And also, um, so finally, I would like to say that um, uh, uh, in answering the, the, the question of the chair, I think the, the first thing is how the EU sees a rising China um, as a rival or as a partner. And second, I do want to ask that um, in achieving this uh, strategic autonomy, will EU um, increase your security involvement or military presence in the Asia Pacific? Will you? if you really achieve this autonomy. So that's the questions in my mind. I really wanted to have some takeaways back home. So thank you, Chair. Right. Thank you very much, Anyan. Um, Natalie, can you, can you put behind your ear uh, for after? We've had a couple of questions to come back to Yanyan and give her a, a, a European answer on that. Right, your moment has come. Um, we have microphones around. Please say who you are, who your question is addressed to, and uh, uh, make it uh, tight so that we can get plenty of questions in. And our first questioner is the inevitable Jonathan Isle. Jonathan. Um, Jonathan Isle from the Royal United Services Institute in London. <clears throat> to our Chinese colleague, it's, it's, it's rather odd that you say we have no power projection when the Charles de Gaulle aircraft carrier is exactly in your waters at the moment, or rather waters you claim to be yours. Um, but um, uh, so uh, but let's leave that to one side. Can you please um, try to suggest to us uh, if what is the Chinese strategy on the 16 plus one in the European Union? Why is it that you are picking on 16 countries or 17? 17 now, now with Greece. To, to join, to, to, what is it so special about them? What is so different about them? If you want a one China policy, would you accept a one Europe policy? Aha. <laughs> Yan Yan, would you like to have a go at answering that now while. Uh... Okay. 
Yeah, it, it'll it'll work. Sorry, I will I, yeah. I'll try. So the first question: Are you uh, American or European? Sorry, I, I didn't. Okay, okay. Well, I, I mentioned just now that the European countries does not have this uh, a military power projection in the in the Asia Pacific waters. Um, well, because some of the European countries, like the UK and France, does send their warships to um, navigate through the disputed waters in the South China Sea. But I'm saying that the United the EU as a unity does not have a have uh, yeah have an integrated uh, South China Sea policy or have a have a, a, a joint military um, operations together. Yeah, that's what I mean. And regards of the uh, waters or disputed waters, well, South China Sea is a vast area of seawater, sea and it includes the Gulf of Thailand, Gulf of Tonkin, and the whole like more than two hundred uh, square kilometers, uh, two hundred thousand square kilometers um, water areas. Well, I'm talking about uh, the South China Sea as a, uh, as a, a rather, uh, a rather uh, big uh, a geographic definition. But you said, it's, it's also correct to, uh, for you to say that uh, whether I mean it as it's a disputed waters or not. Well, I think that, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, the, the United States and the UK and the France they send their warships within uh, to pass through the disputed waters in the South China Sea, and that's 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 what I'm talking about. I don't think there's much uh, ambiguity about there. And regarding the question about the 16 plus one, and honestly, I'm not a EU scholar, so I I will uh, go back and write to the Foreign Ministry and find try to find some answer to this question, or maybe I can ask your question to some of the audience who are who knows better of this answered than me. Thank you. Do we have another question from the floor? Well, ah, lady over there. Yes. Hello, I'm Annie Keens from the United Nations Office of Counterterrorism. Uh, I haven't heard you talking much about this. I think it's one of the areas where you all agree um, on the need to cooperate, so I'd like to hear some opinions on that. Thank you very much. Alexi, would you? I, you didn't say who that was addressed to, but let me let me start with Alexi, and then we'll move around. That's absolutely right. I I, I wanted to point out a number of examples where Russia and the U U European Union cooperated in the past. One of the examples was uh, counterterrorism operation uh, in Mali. Uh, pardon, in not in Mali in. Uh, Chad and Central African Republic, and then there was a, a joint effort uh, in uh, uh, the Gulf, uh, off the coast of the uh, Horn of Africa, uh, counter-piracy operation, European Atalanta Naval Force and uh, Russian Navy. Uh, took part in that uh, joint operation. So there are, there are of course, uh, areas where uh, uh, you know Russia and the EU uh, military uh, dimension uh, can uh, be uh, partners, and uh, and th th this there is a lot of untapped potential in that area, of course. And uh, you know, uh, uh, Afghanistan was uh, mentioned by Chris Hill. Uh, I think that's uh, one of the areas where uh, both Russia and CSTO and NATO and the U.S. Uh, still have a lot of things to do together to counter the uh, ISIS uh, remnants, uh, which migrated from the Syrian uh, 
battlefields to Afghanistan in great numbers by our ass assessment, uh, but also to help you know the Afghans to uh, rehabilitate their economy and uh, social net uh, social net. I'd like to go over to Chris Hill for, uh, and ask him for his uh, perspective. Uh, a cooperative relationship between uh, the United States, Europe, and uh, Russia on uh, counterterrorism. And we had this curious thing where Russia and uh, a, a US-led coalition were simultaneously fighting the same adversary uh, in Syria. Uh, in the form of ISIS, while simultaneously being on different sides of the Syrian civil war. Somehow, that we've emerged from that uh, without having actually, and uh, uh, it ended in disaster between us, but um, with an unsatisfactory outcome, I would think, from the, from the US perspective. Do, do you share Alex's uh, view of, the, of that potential for the relationship? I think uh, we need to look for these uh, areas where we can work together and uh, Afghanistan is one, Syria should be another. I think the U.S., however, has had a difficult process coming up with a consensus on foreign policy with respect to the Assad regime. There was a kind of hope that somehow he would give way and there'd be a constitutional convention of some kind. Uh, my own personal view was that uh, uh, encouraging a new regime in Syria was not something we could do simultaneously but while fighting ISIS. Uh, what I'm pleased about is, for the most part, we have been able to deconflict uh, any problems between U.S. forces there and Russian forces. I think that's some sign of at least kind of some tactical communication there. But I would like to see a much better uh, strategic dialogue on what to do about countries that are clearly incubating terrorism and ultimately exporting it. So uh, I hope we can all do a better job on that in the future. Thank you. Uh, Nata, I'm going to come to you. Um, before you arrived, somebody at the end of this the first session this morning asked the question about whether the EU uh, ought to be involved in, in the reconstruction uh, in Syria, in post-war Syria, if we get to post-war Syria. Um, and is that an area for uh, EU-Russia cooperation potentially, and on what terms? So uh, if, you, if you could maybe answer the, that, that question first and then, and then come to my question. Um, so it seems to me that counterterrorism is a um, sort of classic area in which the EU ought to be thinking not only in its traditional, if you like, category of partnerships, you know, who is our partner and who is not our partner, uh, and rather in uh, th you know, through a lens of partnering. And what I mean by this is that to take the Russia example, well, Russia, frankly speaking, is not really much of a partner these days, is it? Mm. And probably you would say likewise of the European Union. Uh, but Russia... <laughs> okay, let's not go there. Um, but Russia is certainly an actor, not only Russia, with which we can partner on this particular issue, now, I don't, and this I want to be very clear about, I'm not suggesting here that the EU has to go transactional uh, and unprincipled. What I am saying is that the EU has to start off with knowing well what its principles are 
in any particular area, so including on counterterrorism, and then from there, in a very agnostic way and very pragmatic way, try and figure out who are the actors with which on that particular issue uh, it ought to partner with. Uh, as to your question, uh, Paul, on reconstruction in, in, in Syria, there, I think, you know, obviously a lot of thinking has been going on in terms of, you know, we've already had, what, three international conferences on, uh, you know, thinking about post-violent conflict uh, Syria. But I think we haven't really properly started scratching our heads as to what it means to do reconstruction in a war uh, that we have not won. Arguably, no one has won, uh, but certainly we have not won. We have not really even fought it. Um, because obviously, we have been used at doing reconstruction in conflicts in which, particularly obviously through a NATO framework, we did, or at least we thought we had won. Uh, uh, and, and this obviously is a very different uh, case in point. Now, it doesn't mean to say, and here I come back to the principles and, uh, and the pragmatism, it doesn't therefore mean that we have to shed the principles altogether. But it does mean that we need to understand how much can we... Uh, lower that bar mm. uh, in order to be, on the one hand, realistic in terms of what our policies are, but on the other hand, obviously, you're not completely uh, uh, sidelining our values altogether. Can I ask you, while, you, while you've got the mic, to have a go at Yan Yan's question about uh, how the EU perceives China? Well, I think on, on this, what I do is really sort of come back to this whole notion of, uh, of autonomy and yeah. what is autonomy for. Uh, and at, uh, you know, the, the first thing that I'd say on it is that autonomy is what the etymology of the word itself suggests. Auto, nomos. Uh, so it is about the self in order to live by its own laws. And those laws are national, uh, they're European, naturally, and they're international. And here on the international in particular comes the possible uh, connection or with, with East Asia. So obviously if there is a case to be made about, you know, you were talking about international law, a violation of international law, particularly when that international violation, that violation of international law harms or is viewed as harming directly European interests, then there could be a case to, to be made. Now, I don't see this happening today or tomorrow, uh, but I think that this would be the way in which one could, uh, could and should be thinking about it. Thank you. Um, we're, we're pretty much close to the end. Is anybody pregnant with a question they desperately... Oh, all of a sudden a forest of hands appears. Uh, lady there, gentleman here, and then two people right at the back. Very quick questions uh, in rapid fire. Uh, we'll have a final round of the panel, and then uh, as an added extra, Yap de Hofstreffer will give us a few very final, post-final thoughts. Sir. Thank you. Uh, Nicholas Novaki from the Wilfrid Martin Center for European Studies. Very quick question to uh, Natalie. Um, what does uh, strategic and strategic autonomy mean? Or when does strategic autonomy become strategic? Uh, uh, deceptively quick question, I think, that one. Um, Madam, uh, sorry, was it you? No, you weren't. Okay. Uh, no? Okay. So we can take those, those two questions in the back, and then there's one even further back in that case. Aris Kokinos, uh, Eurobol.com. A question to Mr. Alexei. Uh, do you think that the improvement of uh, the relationship between Russia and the Council of Europe is a first step toward a global uh, solution on Ukraine and afterward maybe a lifting up of uh, the European sanction against Russia? 
Okay, Russia and the Council of Europe. Madam? Yes, uh, Annabelle Legag from the European Commission Home Affairs, Director General for Home Affairs. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted someone to comment briefly on the importance of data protection in the context of strategic autonomy and, for instance, the issue of 5G. Thank you. Right. Um, another easy, quick question. <laughs> and finally, last but not least, the gentleman at the back there. Yes, thank you, Alexander Gajina, Political Director from the Slovenian Foreign Ministry. Uh, while we were discussing the, uh, uh, where Europe should go in terms of, uh, of uh, security, and by the way, I'm listening uh, this discussion since at least since San Malo and Chirac and Blair declarations, one issue we left aside, I think the Russian member of the panel mentioned it, is the INF Treaty. Yeah. And my direct question is to both the Russian and the Chinese members of the panel, should, would Russia be willing to renegotiate the Intermediate Range uh, Missile Treaty again, and to the Chinese panelists, what is the Chinese view on the US withdrawal from the INF Treaty? Thank you. So are you saying should they renegotiate re it as a multilateral treaty? Exactly. Right, okay. Um, why don't we start with you, Alexei, and that, that one, and then? Council on Europe and Council Ukraine, Europe. Right. The, uh, the connection is, uh, opposite i mean you know the improvement with council of europe if it happens will not bring uh, uh, good results on ukraine because ukraine has a um, a negotiating mechanism and it it works independently from our relationship with the council of europe so what needs to be done is to implement the minsk agreement for there to be any improvement uh, in ukraine uh, on the INF Treaty, uh, would Russia be willing to renegotiate? Re re uh, we would be willing to sit down uh, to a negotiating table with the US administration. The problem is that the administration didn't want to sit down. Now there are uh, signs that um, uh, the Trump administration is sort of sending signals to our side about their willingness to reevaluate that position. Uh, there was a, a preliminary agreement that the two sides will uh, form negotiating teams and uh, start a kind of a, a expert dialogue on uh, strategic stability. Uh, we hope that happens, although it is, uh, you know, you, you, you never say anything uh, um, for certain with this administration. So let's wait and see. Russia is always ready to engage in meaningful negotiations on strategic nuclear stability and security with the United States or with any other country which uh, is, uh, you know, uh, which, which has anything to say on those matters to be frank. Natalie. Okay, so um, on strategic autonomy, the strategic bit of strategic autonomy. Well, I think the answer to the question is a reflection on what a strategy is. Now, if a strategy is putting in, well, defining what your goals are and, uh, and also what the means that you need in order to achieve them, then it seems to me that strategic autonomy has, in the European case, at least three components, two of which are related to those two aspects. So the goals bit, well, you need to have the decision-making capacity in order to formulate those goals. And this is where discussions on do we need a HQ or not, or et cetera, et cetera, come in. 
Obviously, then there's a question about the means, military as well as civilian, uh, in order to achieve them. And then because we're talking about the European Union, I think there is this third component, which is absolutely fundamental, which is really about the will to use them together, those means, in order to achieve, achieve those goals. And this is where your discussions about you know, a common strategic culture, but also about solidarity. Come, come in, presuming that we will not necessarily share the same threat perceptions, uh, but we can because we simply belong to different geographies and have different histories. Uh, but what we can do politically is foster that solidarity in order to stand for one another uh, in, case, in case of need. Uh, second uh, point on data protection, I think this is absolutely critical, and this is why I think that Whereas the strategic autonomy discussion is a security and defense discussion, there is a broader and in some respects even more important conversation about the European autonomy in general. Uh, in which aspects such as data protection, in which critical infra infrastructure, in which the international role of the euro, et cetera, et cetera, come in. Why is this though so crucial? And let me perhaps just add on the question of economic sovereignty that Chris was also uh, referring to. You know, today we talk about it, for instance, in reference to you know, saving the JCPOA and put, setting up a financial mechanism that would allow us to, to do so. What if, and this goes uh, uh, perhaps as a, a lead uh, in into China, what if today the U.S. decides, uh, sorry, the U.S. tomorrow decides not to impose extraterritorial sanctions on Iran, but it decides to impose sanctions and apply them extraterritorially vis-a-vis -vis China? Then what do we do? <laughs> and unfortunately, this is not pie in the sky. This is something that could take place far sooner than what we uh, all, all, all fear. Uh, Yanya, a quick question to you, I think, would be, I haven't heard the... Uh, government of China express any interest in getting involved in nuclear arms control negotiations. Is there any interest there or do you think that China has got the nuclear weapons it needs and doesn't need to talk to anybody else about them? I am not quite sure about it, but I do notice that China does not have an official like spokesman talking about this issue. Mm. So um, I, I wanted to actually pick up mm. the 5G and following question, uh, sure. following question regarding the data protection. Well, it seems to me that uh, China and especially Huawei company is the middle of the discussion and the debate. And I think the to me as a user of the technology, especially the network, I think the most important thing is to have an effective risk mitigation measure because 5G era is inevitable. So to better use this technology, it's important for us to, to, to have this risk control, risk mitigation. Well, um, uh, if, you, if you look at the United States, it has, a, uh, has this uh, national uh, security agreements with Nokia and Ericsson, Ericsson for them to operate in, in the United States. So I'm thinking that, uh, uh, well, those agreements, national security agreements with these companies are actually the risk mitigation measures. So I'm thinking that maybe in some European countries, maybe we, you can um, consider this kind, of, this kind of solution in terms of data protection and, and, and for um, security reasons. And also for the United States, I think, why not consider signing such a similar uh, agreement with, uh, with the Huawei or, yeah, that's You think in about it mind. in terms of individual EU countries rather than sign, reaching, negotiating such an agreement with the EU collectively? What? Sorry? Excuse me? 
you, you think of it uh, in terms of reaching agreements with individual European countries about risk mitigation for 5G rather than reaching agreement with the EU collectively? Yeah, I do ask this question just now on the first panel, the, uh. this, this uh, discussion this morning, because I do see that uh, uh, the European countries, you have, you're facing different threats, different levels of threats, and you have different approaches towards this 5G. I see that UK is, uh, is, is the changing, uh, there's uh, policy changing of the UK. And also Germany seems to uh, considering accepting the Huawei of operating its 5G network. So I don't, I don't think that the EU so far have a, have a common uh, measure or a common policy towards this issue. That's, that's my personal understanding. Okay. So better go with the individual countries first. Chris, final word from you. Um, is INF dead? Are we moving to a post-arms control world uh, thanks to uh, a conspiracy of proliferation, uh, individual actions by individual countries, and... The, ideo the ideology of some in the United States that the U.S. should not accept any multilateral constraints or bilateral constraints. Well, that ideological point you just made is very true right now. Uh, that said, uh, I think there is, I would say, a great interest among um, sort of foreign policy elites in getting back on track. But with respect to INF, I think there is a sense that um, it can't just be done with Russia, uh, that is China needs to uh, uh, be involved in this in this dialogue. And we need to see if that uh, if what we had in the 80s is really is something that we can uh, reapply some 30, 40 years later. Um, I don't think arms control is dead, but uh, certainly in the minds of uh, of as you put it uh, very diplomatically, some ideologically minded people, uh, they would rather not hear the word again. Thank you very much. Thanks once again for getting out of your pajamas in the middle of the night uh, to give us the benefit of your wisdom. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking our panelists. Now, don't go away because we, I promised you a little extra treat. A few quick thoughts from Jaap de Hofschreffer, or however you pronounce it. Ask <laughs> Jamie how to pronounce it. <laughs> well, uh, I'll, I'll be very brief because it, it, it should not be a boring end of, of what was, I, th I think, a fascinating, a fascinating morning we've had. Uh, let, let, me, let me start by saying that when you discuss uh, uh, strategic autonomy, uh, autonomy or whatever, and you're talking defense, you're talking about the heart of sovereignty. Uh, and to uh, our Chinese colleague, my answer would be, why is there no consensus? Because we are democracies. Uh, and it is often in democracies difficult to reach a consensus. And democracies are always out of breath because we have elections every four or five years. So that makes the process very complicated. Uh, national parliaments want to roll, national governments want to roll, and still there is this necessity for the European Union uh, uh, to do more. Uh, again, to my, to my Chinese friend and colleague, I, I, would, I would prefer to speak about a risen China and not about a rising China, because I think China has, has risen already for quite some time. Uh, when, when we're discussing uh, Europe and European Union and defense, we are also discussing, in my opinion, we're discussing to uphold the international rules-based system. 
I heard Natalie Tocci speak quite rightly about it. This is what the European Union is all about. It's about values. And it's about upholding the, the international system and take responsibility to uphold uh, the, the international system. So it is very much uh, uh, about values. And I think in this regard, the European Union, we Europeans, could do with a bit more self-esteem and self-confidence. Uh, I used the expression this morning, uh, financial economic giant, uh, adolescent and pygmy, but we are a huge market. We are of great importance both to the United States of America and to China and to Russia, I would, uh, I, I would add. So there's, there's no need to, to, uh, to hide behind the, the, bed, the bed covers. Uh, uh, and and self-confidence in this regard is, is, is of importance. And I repeat what was said this morning. Uh, we need for this European operation, we need French-German uh, German leadership. Uh, I'm not that concerned uh, to my Russian friend and colleague uh, about what he said about combining EU and, and, and NATO assets. Uh, uh, if you look at the 2% GDP discussion, if you look at the fact that we have one single set of forces, I, I, I wouldn't say that the threat to Russia would immediately increase uh, if EU and NATO uh, would work closer together, which, which is a thing I would very much, uh, very much support. Let's not be over-ambitious, do not overshoot, as Minister Lewick uh, told us this morning. Uh, the word pragmatism has been used uh, lots, lots of times. Uh, I, would, I, would, I would support that. I was shocked and scared uh, about what we heard uh, in, the, in the intermezzo, uh, because I think that the weaponization of data is one of the biggest threats confronting us. You have the classic threats, uh, seeing an aircraft or a tank or a boot on the ground or whatever. But what we heard by, of, of the two speakers, and, 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 and great respect, should not only scare us, but we should also try to find a, a European answer. Because if, if our citizen, our European citizen, or the citizens more in general, cannot anymore distinguish between what is real and what is fake, we have, Houston, we have a huge problem in, the, in, the, in that regard. So. Uh, a compliment to the organizers, uh, Geert and Jamie, uh, Paul, that you, 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 brought this, uh, you, you, brought, you brought this in. Uh, listening, and then I'll close at the, at the final panel, uh, to uh, our United States friends and Ambassador Hill, thank you so much for participating. Uh, uh, and to President Trump, more in particular, my message would be, Mr. President, please realize we Europeans are the best allies you have. And when I look at it from a geopolitical perspective, uh, uh, and I see the international system, I, I see the complicated geopolitical situation uh, we are in, uh, there is every reason, uh, also in the domain of trade, uh, for the European Union and the United States uh, to work together. Not uh, because China is an opponent or, or, or an enemy or whatever, but China is a rival. Let's face the facts, China is a rival. Let's forget about the word systemic, because then, then it becomes slogan-like again. But China is a rival, uh, and, and, and that means that we see in many domains rivalry. It is also European interest uh, that, that uh, the South China Sea uh, guarantees freedom of navigation. We don't like those nine dash lines very much uh, of, of, of China. And it is right, in other words, as Jonathan Isle was, was, was rightly saying, that, that also European navies patrol uh, in, the, in the framework of freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. That is not Europe taking on a global role, 
but that is Europe protecting its its own uh, its own interests, uh, and and you can't accuse the European Union of protecting its own interests. And and entirely entirely finally, uh, I th I think uh, uh, listening uh, to uh, uh, our Russian friend, there still is a huge perception gap between the European Union and Russia, and I think that requires more dialogue. Quite honestly. We will not agree on Crimea, we will not agree on Ukraine, we will not agree on the violation of international law. The perception gap was, was clearest to me when you started talking about international law, uh, which is remarkable. Uh, but if the perception gap is so wide, we need more dialogue and we need more serious discussion. And I think, I think that moment has, has, has come uh, quite, uh, quite, on, uh, quite honestly. Um, Ambassador Hill, I, I, I hope uh, that, that the United States uh, will not show too much fatigue uh, in, taking all, uh, in taking on a role I think the US is destined to take on. As a superpower, you will always be criticized. When you underperform, like in Syria, you're, crit uh, you're criticized. When you overperform, like in Iraq, you're, crit you're criticized. Always you will be criticized. Uh, uh, but when in an earlier period of history the United States decided to focus uh, it, itself a bit on its own interests, uh, I saw huge prizes being paid in Pearl Harbor and on the beaches of Normandy, and, and we remember 75 years of Normandy. So the, the, my, 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 my point is uh, keep on leading as the US. I'm not talking about to, to a particular administration, of course, now. We, we are the best you have. But upholding the international system needs your active participation. Because I end where I started, and that's on the, on the, on, on the, on the value thing. We are democracies, and in the present day world, it will be more and more complicated to discuss human rights and to discuss values. Uh, but that is still the core of, of, of what we are uh, in, in Europe and, 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 and what you are in the United States of America. Complicated democracies, always out of breath, uh, but still the best system we have. I think the organizers, Jamie, uh, Geert, uh, uh, Paul, I think it was, at least for me, and I hope for all of you, a very inspiring morning. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you all for coming. And, uh, and a thanks to all of our panelists, also uh, this morning's panelists uh, as well. And bon appétit. And by the way, on the 25th of June, uh, we will be launching my next report on Italy and Mediterranean security, and I hope many of you will be able to be here for that. Thank you. <laughs>